Welcome to Chicken Bites. In this podcast, we unpack the issues which are currently facing the South African poultry industry. Today, we welcome for our podcast, Mervyn Abrahams, who is the program coordinator for the Peter Maritzburg Economic Justice and Dignity Group. And this is an organization that has been busy for many years monitoring food prices, particularly for the foods that are bought by your lower and middle income people. Uh, Well, first of all, hello, Mervyn. Welcome to our podcast. So good morning and good morning to you and to all who would listen to this podcast. This this is an interesting project because it's very focused, Mervyn. You are specifically looking at prices that affect your middle to lower income groups. Why did you feel the need to start a group like this? There are a number of factors that led to our formation in June of 2018. And of particular importance to us is that we get credible data, well-researched, evidence-based on how food insecurity is impacting lower-income South African households, so working-class households and those living off social grants. Now, in the context of extreme high inequality, it is inevitable that the data that will be used, which is often averaged out across the population, will not give us a proper reading. Uh, In fact, it would often overcount what the lower incomes are able to spend, and it will undercount what, for instance, the top 10% in the country will, will spend. So there was a need for for an important evidence-based tool. And hence, we developed this Household Food Affordability Index, the center of which is really our food basket, Mm. where we track the food, 44 basic foods identified by women in low-income households across the country. And on the basis of that basket, we then track the cost of that basket on a monthly basis in areas such as the metro of Johannesburg, Durban, Etiquini, Peter Maritzburg, the city of Cape Town, and then in little small towns like Springbok in the Northern Cape and mm. Tuba Tuba, the Northern KZN, because small towns of Africa also gives a very different kind of feel to how food affordability plays out. What's interesting about your research as well is you don't only look at food, you place food within the context of the income and the other expenses that families simply cannot economize on things like transport, school fees, clothing, etc. So it's a snapshot of how you, as you call them, your working class people are expected to exist in terms of things like social grants and minimum wages and so on. It's it's a very comprehensive amount of information, but who uses this information, Mervyn? Who is it aimed at? So, Nikki, the information or the, or the index that we release on a monthly basis is geared to a number of different groupings or constituencies, if we could call it that way. Firstly, of course, we release it to the media, and through the media, it becomes a tool for public awareness. And the media use it extensively, and so that builds public awareness around what the situations are. But it is also used by various para-government agencies. So, so we know that it is often used by Stats SA, by the Competition Commission, 
And we do know that it is often used by policymakers. It is referred to occasionally during parliamentary debate. And for instance, we know that it is at times consulted by when the Department of Trade and Industry consider tariffs or import tariffs mm. on certain types of goods mm. and, and foods. So, so it's used quite widely. And that is important because, you know, it is not one grouping in South Africa that will be able to change the situation. It is actually food insecurity in South Africa relates to our overall food system. And that is quite complex. And so the um, different amounts, different groupings of people within the system requires this level of information. And we've seen that it does make a major contribution to the debate. I'm very glad to hear that. Do you have any specific case studies where you have seen that your data has led to, for instance, an increase in a grant or perhaps a policy change of any sort? Have you been able to make a direct correlation or do you think that it's more a cumulative effect of all this information? So so we believe it's an accumulative effect that particularly policy shifts is never only uh, brought about by one organization with one tool. Mm. It is actually a cumulative and and the voices of many. But there, there might be just three areas that we believe we have contributed, mm-hmm. not so close, but contributed. Uh, the first was that March of last year, of course, the national minimum wage was set at a particular level and then ESCOM came and increased electricity prices across the country. Mm-hmm. And we had a concerted media campaign that actually now the National Minimum Wage Commission should actually increase the minimum wage again because of that increase. And and we saw an eventual further increase of, I think it was 3%. Mm. So, so that was a cumulative. The other area that we believe we also contributed to is that for many years we had argued that the food poverty line as set by the National Treasury should actually be increased on an annual basis on the basis of food price inflation Mm. and not on CPI, because there is a big mismatch between CPI and food price inflation. Mm. And we can speak a little later around that. And so this past year, we are very happy to see that the food poverty line was increased by something like 14%, which in our view, Uh, reflected that of food price inflation. Mm. So those are two important areas. And then we also know that our data was consulted when they needed to to make uh, determinations around tariffs, for instance, on peanut butter and things like that. So in a way, it contributes and we are very happy that it does. But it's never solely a gain caused, you know, affected by our organization. Mm, mm. It is because many other actors have also called for similar Mm. issues. So you're a very important link in the chain. Specifically, to go back to what you said about food inflation should not be linked to CPI. And the reason for that is in the lower income households, the proportion of money spent on food is greater than the proportion of money spent on food in a higher income household. I think that's pretty clear. And so any increase, you know, even if it's a couple of cents at the till, decreases the buying power or or not even the buying power, but the ability to exist 
of people who have lower incomes. That's very, very important. And this is something that comes out again and again and again in your reporting. Now, with regard to food inflation and rising prices, have you noticed any particular trends? For instance, we've just recently had an avian flu epidemic, which led to shortages and huge prices. I saw in your latest report, you reflected the huge price increases in the price of eggs. There are, there are looming shortages of poultry. We've identified NESFAS students, for instance, who say that when they take their money to the shop, they need to decide whether they're going to buy chicken or tinned fish, because it seems that those two items kind of vie for affordability. Over the last couple of years that you've been in, it's now five years, I think. Have you identified any particularly important trends? So, so Nikki, what we have identified, for instance, is that the inflation rate on what we call the core foods, uh, these are 16 foods that we have identified based on what women tell us they actually have to buy every month, no matter the increase mm. of price, because it is it is those foods around which they could potentially cook a pot of food. So mm. that would be things like maize meal or rice and flour and cooking oil and potatoes and onions and chicken pieces and bread and perhaps things like stock or soups that flavor mm. the food, you mm. know, the stews and so on, and sugar. Now, What we have seen is that the greatest increases have been on these types of food. Over the last year, for instance, we have seen that these foods have increased from 2,600 to something like 2,885. Now, that's a significant increase Mm. on those particular foods. So that is definitely one of the trends we have seen. The other trends we have seen is that our food prices in South Africa are tied up into, and the way our food system is structured makes us quite uh, susceptible to global risks. Mm. And there, for instance, we are speaking around particularly geopolitical risks and as it impacts fuel. Mm. So, for instance, when we saw the war between Russia and the Ukraine uh, for the first six months, we saw massive increases in terms of of wheat prices, of Mm. cooking oil. Remember, cooking oil went up over 100 Uh, over a very short period of time. So those were kind of effects. Currently, we are seeing quite a spike in the price of rice, for instance. Mm. Uh, Over the last month, 5% and over the last year, 22%. And that is connected to the fact that India, due to climate change, is not harvesting as much rice as the population requires. So India is not exporting any rice. They're keeping all the rice for the domestic market. Mm. And of course, that has pushed up the price and we feel it at our store. So in a way, another trend is the the exposure of our food basket to to factors beyond our control. And, And that also impacts, for instance, the fact that most of our tomatoes are grown, for instance, in Lopopo and then sold around the country. The amount of fuel that is required 
to transport this food across South Africa mm. is absolutely immense because our food is grown so far from the table where it is eaten. So those are kind of trends that we have seen. And then, of course, we have seen trends with households moving away from certain foods to other foods. So we are in the process of trying to work out how many households have moved to things like two-minute noodles and mm. all of that because they can no longer afford, for instance, potatoes, the price of which has gone up by almost 102% over the last year. So, so yes, uh, chicken prices have gone up, egg prices have gone up, but potatoes have gone up 102% over the last year. So it's been a a lot of that core basket. Mm, It's not not, not good news at all. And it just goes to show that, in fact, our our food security then is a lot more fragile than people think if they've got, and as you say, you've got geopolitical factors, you've got climate change factors, and then you've got local factors as well. So, So the fact that when food becomes unaffordable, particularly for those living off social grants, those living off a national minimum wage, their only way to deal with the fact that food is no longer affordable is to cut back on the amount of food they consume or the quality of the food they consume. Now, both those options or survival options are actually bad in the long run for the entire country Mm. and for our economy. For instance, when people eat lower quality food or too little, that means that there will be a greater demand in terms of our hospital, our clinics. Already we are seeing that the highest cause of death amongst Black African women are non-communicable diseases. Those are your diabetes, high Mm. blood pressures. All of those are directly linked to chronic undernutrition. Mm. We are also seeing that, for instance, in our school system, we cannot expect children who are hungry to learn properly. We already have a stunting level of about 25% of our children under the age of five. Those children, through no fault of their own, will enter the labor force, all likelihood as laborers and will not be able to compete in a global economy that is constantly adapting in terms of AI, IT, etc. So in a sense, it will have long-term implications for our economic development as well. So it really is of critical importance that we ensure affordability and access of sufficient and nutritious food for all South Africans because thereon is built the economic social security of South Africa into the future. And that's why we believe it is so critical that we deal with the issue of household food insecurity and ensure that every household can afford sufficient and nutritious food. Hmm. Mervyn, this might be an unfair question, but is there a quick fix to this? Is there some sort of intervention that can take place? Or are these systemic problems that are going to need a lot of effort and unpacking in order to correct? So this is a systemic problem, and it will take us quite a while because we would actually have to relook at our entire food system because there is so much wastage. There is so Mm. much risk in our food system, uh, but that would take years 
to deal with. Sure. But there are things that can be done in the immediate term. Mm. So, for instance, we have called on government as a first step to always ensure that the child support grant, which, of course, we know is well-placed, we know it is used to its optimum level, that the child support grant should be at the level of the food poverty line. Mm. Currently, the poverty line is 760 and the child support grant is 510 mm. because we know that that can turn around a lot of child stunting that we are seeing at the moment. Mm. So that's one area. The second area that we can do a lot of work on is ensuring that all our kids have a good meal at school. Mm. So the national school feeding system, just make sure that it functions (laughs) and that it works well. You know, so those could be two immediate things. We can almost have a turnaround within a month while we're dealing with the big systemic issues, which will probably take us a decade or two. Mervyn, you provide a very, very important service. And the timing of this is very apposite at the moment as well, because we are heading towards the festive season where expenditure on food actually becomes quite crucial because there's a social element as well. People are wanting to go on holiday. They're wanting to entertain friends, get together with family. So the focus on food security right now is actually very timely. With the information that you've provided and the very important service that you provide, how do you sustain yourselves? How do you keep going? Are you a a non-governmental agency? Are you an NGO? How do you keep going? So, Nikki, yes, we are an NGO, and we do depend on donations and grants from the donor community or from ordinary South Africans who who might have funds available. To be absolutely honest and true, we struggle to survive, (laughs) Mm. often from month to month. We are funded by two organizations, two donor organizations at the moment, and we need to expand that and we need to bring in. So if there is anyone listening who might have access to uh, particularly a local South African foundation who focuses in on food and food security and who requires this level of information to be sustained over a long period, we would very much like to hear from them to, to know how they can support us. Mm. Well, immediately the manufacturers of your core basic food spring to mind. So let's hope that they get to listen to this and understand the important work that you do. Mervyn, thank you so very much for your time. And thank you for giving us an insight into the data that you put together and the changes that you're able to make. And we wish you great success for the next year and however long you manage to maintain this service. Thank you so much, Nikki, and thank you to all those who listen. Thank you for joining us for our podcast, which was brought to you by Chicken Bites. If you would like to listen to more podcasts, you can find them on our website, www.chickenfacts.co.za.